Welcome to Michael Stone's podcast, Awaken the World. This podcast is part of an online community library we're developing, one that contains podcasts, videos, transcripts and booklets based on Michael's talks. The goal of this library and this podcast is to bring mindfulness and mental health into the spotlight. Through this work, we're creating new ways to wake up through socially engaged, conscious, spiritual practice. We're creating a culture of compassion and collaboration. We've left our physical monasteries and we're bringing them online. Before we get to today's podcast, I want to take a moment to ask you to consider becoming a patron of this podcast through Patreon. Pledging is easy and can be as little as $1 per month. Just go to patreon.com forward slash Michaelstone and click on the big orange button on the top right of the page. Thank you for listening. Good afternoon. I missed you this morning. It's interesting uh, because um, being able to look around a little bit when you're all sitting without even talking with you, it's easy to notice what's happening just in terms of the posture. there, there are sort of three tendencies uh, in sitting as uh, distractions start to take over. And one of them is um, confusing stillness and spacing out, where um, physically it starts to look like this. <laughs> like you're waiting to get fed. <laughs> yeah. In some forms of psychotherapy, they call this the oral character. <laughs> um, so just watch for this when you're sitting. This tendency to just um, shut down and sort of dissociate. And you can sort of go into this place where there's nothing. Because it's important to remember that um, the feeling of being present is aliveness. It's not shutting down. In other words, it's kind of like we were talking about how the mind's first interpretation of non-attachment is dissociation rather than engagement. Because what we're, what we're letting go of is our view, our viewpoint. And when you let go of your viewpoint, you're engaged with experience. And I hope that for those of you who are new to meditation practice, that the um, busyness of your mind will motivate you to practice. 
will be a little bit humbling. Just the sheer busyness. And so be careful where um, a kind of uh, quietness becomes passivity, apathy, and then just being spaced out. So I see that happening. And then the second thing that's easy uh, to have happen is um, not being able to um, find some distance from all of the thinking. And especially when a more dominant uh, mental pattern shows up, like when you get a good interpretation of what's happening for you, and then that's what's happening and you're back in the viewpoint again. You know? Because for some of us, at some times in our life, one, what will happen in meditation practice is a really deep pattern will arise, and it won't go away very easily. And it will just keep coming back, and keep coming back, and keep coming back. And then easily, the ahamkara... Right? I make you will identify with that and say, this is what's happening in the sitting practice for me. You see? And then that's all we see. And maybe it goes away a little bit here, it goes away a little bit there. And then we don't see that our ideas about what's happening is actually just what we should be watching. We think that that's actually what's happening. Does this make sense? And then we give it substance. So it becomes an object, actually. And then the more we believe that that's real, the more it will be real. And then the more I will be real. You see? And that was all a trick of the ego. You see? Because the ahamkara does not, the ego does not want to be out of a job. Right? And it's kind of like a hydra. You know, you cut off one head and another one grows, you know. It's like, I'm going to just cut off the ego. And then you create a new ego that's just cut off the ego. And then more and more comes sprouting up like compost heat. (laughs) And it also starts to stink. And... um, And then another thing that can happen is kind of overfocus, where you start to get a little bit too tight around needing something to be happening. You know, like maybe you just start to get a bit too tight around the breath, and then the posture starts getting a bit tight. Stira sukhamasanam. So you need you need real attention to the form. But you also need to have some ease there. And the ease is created just by the breath, this natural movement of the breath. And ease is just a function of breathing. You don't have to create the ease. It's there. Shanti, ease, peacefulness.
get to know the mind as a process. And I think for those of us who have, uh, you know, done a lot of contemplation in our lives, or too much therapy, <laughs> um, we're so focused on the content of what's arising in awareness. You know, you all know I, you know, I spend a lot of time doing this work with therapists. And, and this is where therapists really have the hardest time. Is that when certain things start arising, we, we start looking at it psychologically and we become our own therapists. And we start focusing on the content of what arises, assuming that it has meaning. But in this practice, we're not interested in the content. Nothing. There's no interest in the content whatsoever. A certain sensation arises in your gut, and we don't start analyzing the meaning of it. You see? Instead of noticing content, we notice process. So we notice the fact that sensation has arisen and how it passes away. Arising, passing away. Arising, passing away. Arising, passing away. Not the content, because that's where the view starts. You're going to have a viewpoint about the content. And then the whole thing starts. Shinru Suzuki says, when there's stillness, you hear the bird outside, and you don't say, there's a blue jay outside. You don't say there's a blue jay outside, because the blue jay is in your mind. And you don't say the blue jay is in your mind. Oh, blue jay's in my mind. And if you don't fall for blue jay out there, or blue jay in your mind, he says, then the blue jay will fly right into your heart. I always thought that should have been the title for his book. The blue jay will fly right into your heart. Likewise, Dogen says, Do you think that when enlightenment comes, you will say, enlightenment, just like I thought it would be? (laughs) (laughs) That's why when we were sitting before, I gave you this really simple instruction, which is, this is samadhi. This is samadhi. Open to this. 
this if you're sitting and the focus starts to become too tight or the distraction is identified with then the the feeling of sitting is not um, has no virya has no enthusiasm to it because you're not experiencing what's happening as alive it's not giving vitality and I don't mean sitting there expecting some fountain to burst forth but when you're not so concerned with yourself life actually bursts forth life like capital L everything without boundaries so it's impossible to say oh this is the experience of samadhi without boundaries (laughs) enlightenment just like I thought it would be So those are a few words that I have to offer. Um, maybe now we can just take a few minutes and um, uh, I can respond to some of your experiences. Um, so far, as we've been practicing together. So what's happening? What's happening for you? Falling asleep. Falling asleep. It's been a big problem for me all week. Uh huh. And, and I'm not sleep deprived. Yeah. I'm sleeping well. Yeah. yeah. And as I start to get really sleepy, yeah. the less I'm able to come back to my breath. Yes, of course. Uh-huh. Yeah. Isn't that convenient? <laughs> <laughs> It's interesting that in the first paragraph of the Yoga Sutra, Patanjali brings up sleep. He says, sleep is one of the five chitravittis, but it's a confusing one. Because we don't realize that sleeping is the same chitravritti pattern as not sleeping and being distracted. So when you're sleeping, your mind is still going through all the same monkey business. It's just, you're sleeping. But actually, when you're awake and your mind is doing that, you're also sleeping. You're just awake for it. So one of the things I said a couple of days ago was, if you're sitting and you're sleepy, Find a place in you where you're not tired. You can find it. But the samskaras, the patterns in your mind and body, don't want, don't want to be awake right now. They want to, they want to get sleepy. Right? Because that's the habitual groove. 
And so you have to be a bit more vigilant as you start to get a bit sleepy. Especially, you know, sitting in the afternoon. You can find a place in you where you're not sleeping. And you have to contact that and stay with that. And sometimes just a few deeper inhales can help you with that. Sometimes if you're getting sleepy, you can also just press the tongue up into the roof of your mouth for 30 seconds. Take some deep breaths and just... But not moving much. And then see how sleep is just another chitta-vritti pattern. Have any of you ever done sitting all night before? Yeah, it's great, great fun. Great, great um, natural way of hallucinating. (laughs) And when you sit all night, it's like you think that well, you th- every thought that you can have will come up. I remember when uh, Arlen was like three months old, um, he, he got a cold and he was so stuffed up that he couldn't nurse. And the only way he could go to sleep was to nurse. So he didn't go to sleep. For almost three days, he didn't sleep longer than about 20 minutes. And if just Michelle was with him, she couldn't handle it after a couple days, right? If I was sleeping, and if I was with him, I was like, man, it's three in the morning, I can't do this. I need Michelle. So we decided that we just turn this into a retreat. And instead of taking turns, we would do it together and just not sleep until he went to sleep. And of course, you know, we fought. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But most of the time, there was this, especially after the second day where you're delirious, just this realization that... um, if you're just paying attention to what's happening right now, then sleep is actually not a hindrance. It's just what's happening right now. In the same way that death is not something that ever happens to you. Now you say, oh, death with a big D-E-A-T-H it's going to happen to me but actually if you're there here you're here in this moment you're here the next moment you're here the following moment then when it's the moment that it's death you're just there for that moment there's no superimposition on the top that this is the death Someone came to me recently because he was going into surgery and he was terrified about the pain that would ensue after surgery. And he really wanted to learn techniques for dealing with pain. And I said, it's hard for me to teach you the technique of dealing with pain because you don't have any pain right now. But let's just sit together and practice sitting so that you can actually be here without too many um, habits of escape. Like Pema Children says, the wisdom of no escape. 
And uh, he just went through surgery and he said, wow, you know what? It wasn't so bad. There was pain, but it was just pain. Amazing. And this particular person, I think, was so motivated to practice because the fear about the pain was so intense. His fear was so great. Or you could interpret that another way. You could say his bewilderment was so great that he was ready to give it up. Just to give up and just pay attention. Impeccable attention. And it's easier. So what else are you going to do? So what else did you notice? Yeah. I feel I get to a point when I am experiencing diminished returns. Mm. <laughs> if that's the right word. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm very new to this. You mm-hmm. know, I, I did ten day the passion, which is really mm-hmm. difficult for me, but yeah. got somewhere. Yeah. This has been easier. Yeah. But I feel as though um, at a certain point I just can't do it anymore. I start fighting. Mm-hmm. Is that time? If I was in my own home to get up yeah. and stop, or just not the time to get up, <laughs> I just yeah, don't yeah, know that. Yeah. Well, maybe I can respond just in terms of how to just set up your own practice, really, which is, you know, pick an amount of time. I think, like, if you're starting, 20 minutes is pretty good, but I think 30 minutes is ideal. And um, to sit every day for 30 minutes and to have a clock uh, in a place that you can't see so you're not watching the clock that goes off after 30 minutes. And sitting every day allows you this 30-minute container where whatever shows up in that 30 minutes, you're going to come back to the breath. And some days it's going to be really steady. And some days after 10 minutes, you'll be like, oh, you'll, your mind will come up with amazing reasons for getting up about how spiritual you are and how you recognize that there's love everywhere and you don't actually really need to do the last... I mean, f- what's five more minutes, you know? And you watch that also. You get so sleepy, you say, okay, I'm, not, I'm just going to do the rest of this in bed. <laughs> and what happens is, eventually you don't even need to time it anymore because your body actually knows the feel of 30 minutes. And, um, and you can start to learn how to work with all of the different mind states that arise. And if you don't have the container, then the meditation practice becomes a bit self-styled. You know, where maybe on days where the stuff that really needs working with arises, and those are the days usually you get distracted and decide to quit. I found that after 45 minutes of certain passion, I knew yeah. exactly when that point was when my right knee yes. started to talk to yes. me mm-hmm. in such a loud voice. Uh-huh. Okay. <laughs> yeah. And uh, I just knew it was 45 minutes. Yeah, which is sure. sort of hopeful because yeah. then I thought, well, what's about 15? No. Hmm. And I was waiting for that chance. Yeah. Oh, that was happening. Yes. 
I don't consider I have knee problems, but maybe I do. Well, first of all, you know, there are certain things we can do for all your postures that will help a little bit, more or less. But no matter how flexible you are or perfect your posture is, you're going to get strong sensations in your body. It's going to happen. I promise you that's going to happen. You can't have a perfect pose that will make that not happen. I've never, ever seen it, ever, ever, ever. But instead of going with those sensation and theorizing about your knee and your age and your disposition or inheritance or whatever, um, you open up to that because that's what's arising. And then you're working with the mind. Mm -hmm. And none of you are going to hurt yourself sitting here for 30 minutes, even if your legs go to sleep. Two minutes later, you get back up and everything's fine. You do the walking meditation and everything's okay. Oh, I swear I was just about to die of the cancer that started from my ankle. And I mean, the nerve damage that I'm going to... And you see yourself in the wheelchair rolling into here. Or maybe in the wheelchair never coming here. Or in the wheelchair protesting outside about the cult of pain. The cult of pain. Um, Not at all. Open up to the experience. For personal practice... I think it's important for me to have the space set up so I don't have to set it up. Mm-hmm. In the same space and the same so that pretty soon the half hour will be ten minutes of setting up the space. Yeah. So just have that where you can't really walk by yeah. it. It's really yeah. helpful too. Yeah. Tiknat Han says you should actually have two spaces set up. You should have one space that always has your cushion for formal practice. And you should have another place that's set up that always has flowers. And one place is for your own sitting practice. And the other place is for whenever you're in the middle of an argument with the person who you live with, your lover or your kid, you go sit in front of the flowers and look at them and smell them. Formal practice and informal practice. Um, just speaking on my experience today and the first day that we sat with the child, the first little while, no problem. Mm-hmm. And then all of a sudden, I, I start to freak out and I get really angry. Mm-hmm. And I get angry with Michelle because she's mm-hmm. conducting this meditation. And mm-hmm. I just get angry with the fact that I can't mm-hmm. calm down this anger. Mm-hmm. And I try and come back to the breath. But mm-hmm. it's like the more that I try to calm down, the mm-hmm. more agitated I become. Yes. Uh-huh. And um, that's been my, my practice mm-hmm. over the last little while. Even at home, mm-hmm. it's like great, intense. Mm-hmm. Like, Oh my God! I can't believe I'm sitting here. It's like yeah. feeling yeah. um, that it's really hard to cope with. Yeah. Yeah. 
So you have to become intimate with that anger. Mm -hmm. And the first way to become intimate with it is to remember that you know this anger really well. Mm -hmm. Like if it's come up a few times this week, you know it now. Mm -hmm. Maybe you know it better than other people in the room. Um, So invite it to the table. Anger. Good friend. It's been a long time. Or maybe it hasn't. (laughs) And... um, and remember that anger is usually a uh, what Freud calls a reaction formation, aversion to something that you're feeling. So to try and tune in to the feeling, physical feeling, that's underneath of the label of anger, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. So you feel angry and then you've got a little bit of a story going about your anger, And remember what Jung says, the first thing you're going to do with it is project it. It's got to be Michel. (laughs) So just come back to the anger, come back to the body, and really open to it. Feel the feeling that's there, but you don't have to add a story about it. Open to this anger. Yeah. All of you, you know, because listen, it's hard to admit that there are certain patterns we have going under the surface, because the reason why they're under the surface is because it's a bit hard to maybe let them in. They might interfere with our persona a little bit or our ideas about ourselves. And the paradox of sitting is on the line of awareness the good stuff is going to show up. And so is all the other stuff. And usually the stuff that shows up that we don't know how to work with is the stuff that shows up that we don't know how to work with. And it doesn't just show up when you're sitting. It usually shows up in your life. But now that you're still right here, it's going to come up in a more acute way probably. And your reaction to it is going to be a bit clearer to see. And so it's so important, like what Natalia is saying, is this anger is showing up, and I actually I have no idea how to work with it. I just don't know what to do with it. And then we're learning something about practice. And then that same skill is going to be so valuable when that anger arises during the day for you at some point, Mm -hmm. you're going to be able to catch it and have the skill of catching it. And it can be anything. Anger or jealousy or greed or competitiveness or planning or regret or sexual energy or whatever it is that shows up for you. Michael, if I can just say mm-hmm. one one thing that I do at home that helps yeah. me uh-huh. with this recurring anger is um, in one of your previous intensives you said it's okay like whatever's there it's, it's absolutely okay mm-hmm. and I try and say it's okay here yeah. here okay okay so mm. sometimes mm. sometimes yeah yeah like I can't get inside your experience. 
But at some level, some of what you're experiencing is fairly universal. And sometimes one of the things I like to tell people in certain occasions um, is that whatever you're going through on your cushion, I've gone through that too. (laughs) Doesn't mean that I resolved it, but I know that feeling. Like I can get inside that feeling. Maybe the content or the details are different from you, but that state of mind is a human state of mind. And it's basically like just putting my hand on your back and saying, it's okay. Yeah, Probably nine other people in this room have felt that too. And it's one of the nice things about talking openly here about meditation practice rather than one-on-one is that probably a lot of the things you're hearing other people saying are also states of mind and body that you have come up to. Mm-hmm. Oh, I like yeah. that. What's that? Uh, I had exactly that emotion, mm-hmm. which for me is very unusual when I meditate. Mm-hmm. And but just this past meditation, yes. when we just finished, I had exactly that that emotion, uh-huh. Uh-huh. which for me was surprising. Yeah. But, so listen to her if you brought sure. it up. Oh, isn't that exactly? Wasn't just me. Yeah. So yeah. 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 So why don't we hear what Patanjali has to say about this, uh, what was written about this 2,300 years ago. I mean, I know it's so personal and anger is so contemporary, but maybe there's something. (laughs) Um. Okay, uh, just look at it on page 99, um, line 30 of the first chapter. Do you, do you guys have a copy that you can look at? Does everybody have a copy? I have extra. Yeah? Here you go. Line 30. Uh, So here are the obstacles that arise. Um, Sickness, apathy, doubt, carelessness, laziness. Sickness, apathy, doubt, carelessness, laziness, sexual indulgence or hedonism, delusion, 
lack of progress and inconstancy or inconsistency are all distractions that, by stirring up consciousness, act as barriers to stillness. We, of course, could add some more to the list. But this is a pretty good list. When they do, one may experience distress, depression, or the inability to maintain steadiness of posture or breathing. Was that true for you, Natalia? Clearly. One can subdue these distractions by working with any one of the following principles of practice. Consciousness settles as one radiates, so here they are. First of all, friendliness. So we covered that, right? Anxiety arises. Oh, there you are, my friend. And you let the anxiety unfold. Friendliness. Anger arises. And you, with friendliness, so your posture, so it's not that you're practicing friendliness, but you become friendliness. And so anger is arising in the space of friendliness. That's not usually our first response to anger, because our first response is we're in meditation practice. This is all supposed to be blissful. What are you doing here? And we try to get rid of it somehow. Um, Compassion. Friendliness. And, And there's an order here. Friendliness. Then compassion. Oh. Pathos. To suffer. Calm, which is where we get the word community, with, open to it. Friendliness, compassion, delight, mudita, and equanimity. Treating whatever is arising as equal to anything else. Delight, delight is like appreciation. Okay, well, it's good that this is arising to a certain degree because it's creating some balance. And equanimity, here's the part I like, toward all things, whether pleasant or painful, good or bad. The Sanskrit is the best. Klishta, klishtaha, punya, punya. Pleasant, painful, good or bad. Or you should have those four lines memorized, by the way. Put them on your fridge. Put them in your bathroom mirror. Put them over your bed. Uh, It's not popular yet to tattoo them on your body, (laughs) but I'm sure someone's going to do it sooner or later. Um, Yeah. Mm -hmm. Could you just talk? You just said something 
uh, that was very interesting. You said you said there's an order to it, and I can see that in a way. I, I first read it as a list, but it's not a list in the sense it's an order. It's an order, yeah. Like for example, um, we're we're doing this um, course uh, for clinicians and. Uh, one of the weekends is just on working with pain. Mm-hmm. And um, so the exercises that we're doing that weekend are we're <coughs> creating exercises based on these in order. So part of the exercise is that uh, the clinicians will um, take an example from their practice mm-hmm. of someone they're working with who are, who's in pain. And they have to come up with a meditation exercise. Uh, to lead somebody through. So, for example, you're working with someone, they're in a hospital bed. They've just come out of surgery and they're in a lot of pain. And so you would come up with um, three or four uh, descriptions uh, of guided meditations that you could do with that person just in terms of friendliness. Friendliness to the pain, friendliness to the nurses, friendliness you know, how to find friendliness in this space of experiencing pain. Which, of course, as you know, throws a wrench in the ahamkara mm-hmm. maker that then turns the pain into dukkha. And then the next technique is once that can happen, then some guided meditations on how to actually generate compassion. And we go through the list. Uh, so we can start to see why it's sequential. You can't jump into equanimity if you haven't done the friendliness part. And do you see these as as exactly the same as what is presented in Buddhism? The Mm Brahma-viharas. Yeah, identical. Word for word, same order. Yeah, Yeah. just Uh a bit of a difference. Like for the first one, it would be loving-kindness and yeah. Same words in Sanskrit. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting, actually, in uh, the way they've translated. You know, in Buddhism, I love this about um, how some of these words have been translated. But love and kindness are always put together. Mm-hmm. So you don't hear the word kindness yeah. or the word love. You always hear loving kindness. I love, I love that. It's really beautiful. Yeah. Um, can we keep going? Um, and this is so Patanjali, right? He never just says, okay, here's like the five things you can do. He's going to give you a few more. Like, okay, if that doesn't work, um, or, and I love this one, pausing after the breath flows in or out. So let's just use out as an example, okay? And you can just try this on, right? You're sitting and the anger starts arising. Or let's use another example. Let's say... um, anxiety or irritability or agitation starts arising, pausing at the end of your exhale. I mean, just try this. Like, really let the exhale go down 
you know. So there's gravity at the end of the exhale. And um, that's also a really, really good exercise. So, for example, I'd say that if there's pain that's so intense, where trying to bring some friendliness, it's not going to happen. Because maybe the mind is just so caught up in the um, impact of the pain that I would actually just keep it very physical and just feel the end of your exhale over and over, over and over. Potentially saying if the if distraction is so intense, this is another uh, way you can work with it. By the way, this is all in the first chapter. He hasn't even talked about the eight limbs yet. Or, he says, <laughs> by steadily observing as new sensations materialize. Or, when experiencing thoughts that are luminous and free of sorrow. Or by focusing on things that do not inspire attachment. Or by reflecting on insights culled from sleep and dreaming. We're not going to go through all these. Um, But he keeps going. But I would say for you and your practice, (laughs) just stick with the first two suggestions right now. Following is a good example of meditation and action because following the breath to the end of it is excellent if you're in a discussion with somebody and it starts to get heated. But especially if you use it since I'm an employer, people always want to give me suggestions and corrections. Yeah. And it stops me from defending and uh, it, it just stops feeling quiet. Yeah. Uh-huh. And it's very restful. Mm-hmm. Take it off the seat and need to. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, you have now a lot of tools in your toolbox. And that's why I've been saying this week, like, don't read this as a text on philosophy. This is not philosophy. So how to get beyond the language that might sound at first kind of precise and so on. And see that there's really a description of how the mind works and how you can work with the mind and body. Any other comments about your your practice? Now's your chance. Um, Sometimes I wonder... uh, if it would be better if I had like a uh, another object to focus on, mm-hmm. like, you know, some people um, walk around saying you know, Jesus prayer all the time, mm-hmm. or whatever, you know, like something that or mm-hmm. a mantra, I guess. Yeah. And I've never really uh, worked with that kind of meditation. Mm-hmm. I did a, some koan practice, which I found very difficult. <laughs> but. Um, I'm just wondering, again, I, I've always been taught not to mix things up and mm-hmm. too much. Yeah. And um, so I'm always hesitant to yeah. experiment. But, uh-huh. you know, even like the sensation, sometimes it's easier for me to get the initial sensation through the nostril. Uh-huh. But I've, uh, most of my 
practice has been in the belly, so I feel oh, I should stay in the belly. Mm-hmm. So I yeah. don't know, um, in terms of choosing and working with tools, what's yeah. the best way? And there's, of course, a big debate. Nostrils or belly? <laughs> like, schools divide over this. <laughs> I mean, that's the school that does the nostrils? That's not true to the practice. <laughs> um, I mean, Patanjali is very clear about this. He's saying the object is actually not really that important. Whatever turns you on, that's the object. Stick with it. Um, but I'd say that at different times we might need different objects. And um, actually, most of the time, for those of you that have, have been to my classes, you know, the, the, f- the first way I usually teach meditation practice is meditating on sound. Because um, we usually sit still and just allow sound to occur. And um, it's a very wide open kind of sense door practice. And um, it's a really good one in an urban environment because there's always a lot of sound. And it's how to just let sound be sound without labeling it, without too much language, without going after sound. And um, that's usually where I, how I introduce people to sitting. And uh, it can be good also for people who have a lot of pain in their body, because if they start doing meditation on the breath right away, sometimes it can take them too quickly into pain. That can sort of overwhelm them and be more actually of a hindrance to starting to get concentrated. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, so we can talk more about that, you know, but there are different ways you can use different objects at different times. Mm-hmm. And, um, and we can talk more about what those objects are. But I think that, that sound is a good one to start with. Mm-hmm. And um, I think the, the sequence of the four foundations of mindfulness are really very... Um, they're quite perfect. And uh, so then you would focus on uh, um, the breath in the body, which then gives rise to feeling. And then you would, so like feeling sensation in the body, and then you would notice, um, uh, so body, feeling, and then the mind, thoughts coming and going, and then all phenomena. And so there's a kind of order, so you're not overwhelmed noticing too many things. Uh-huh. So, I, I've had a little bit of instruction on mm-hmm. counting, out of counting breath, yeah. counting mm-hmm. meditation. Uh-huh. It doesn't appeal to me because it's, uh-huh. very, it's hard to attend to whatever else is coming up. Yeah, I mean, often if a teacher sees that you can't uh, sit still and just watch what's happening. Then they'll give you some concentration practices, like counting to ten usually, over and over and over. Such a good practice. Yeah. But let, let me just also... Um, is it okay if we just cover a little bit more theory? Um, in pretty well every tradition, you find three different kinds of meditation. Um, the first one is uh, calming. Um and in Buddhist terminology, it's often called samatha. And we would say that that's like dharana. Right? You keep coming back to the breath, coming back to the breath, and something about it just goes... Or you just come back to the breath over for half an hour, 
And whatever you came into the meditation stirred up about is much smaller 30 minutes later. That's common. So that's, that's really, really important. And I'd say what most people call vipassana nowadays is actually samatha practice. Um, the next kind of practice is dhyana or concentration practice. So actually, this is how the Buddha used to teach. He used to teach, he used to say that um, samatha practice and concentration practice, so calming practice and concentration, are like two mules pulling a cart. And if you only really focus on practicing one of them, the cart will go around in circles. So that, um, and there's a debate, of course, in different schools. If you just keep practicing the calming, concentration just happens. And other schools say no. You should actually learn concentration practices and calming practices. That's separate techniques. So an example of a concentration practice would be uh, counting. And then there's a third one, which is um, in the Zen tradition, it would be the koan practice. Um, in Tibetan tradition, it would be an analytical practice. In uh, Theravada tradition, it would be um, vipassana. V means to go into something, and pasha means to see, which in English would be translated, you could translate that as insight, meditation practice, which is when once you establish some calmness, okay, so let's say you're sitting and finally... And you've probably felt this today, but there are moments in the sitting where actually there's a little bit of calmness. Yeah? And once you can establish some calmness, then there's some work to do. Is that then you go looking into the calmness with some questions. That's what I mean by insight. You look, you take sight, it's a metaphor, and you look in to that calm space. And you're looking for three different things. You're looking for dukkha. You're looking for how you're creating suffering. So you're looking right in that moment how you can create suffering or not. The second thing you would look for is um, impermanence, which is what we did today a little bit. And the third thing you would look for is um, not self how nothing that's occurring is I, me, or mine. And there's ways to do this. Like, for example, I don't know if some of you have done this with me before, where we do sitting practice, and then you ask a question in the middle of it, like, who's listening? Mm -hmm. Or who's breathing? And the mind goes, (laughs) (laughs) you know? And it's like, everything goes, whoa. And then the mind can't handle that, it goes, oh, it's me, I'm listening. And then you do it again, you know, until you just start to break apart what you think is I, me, and I. And these are like the three uh, uh, different forms of meditation. And the, so vipassana means insight. It's where you're sort of really looking in to look for, in Buddhism, it's called the three characteristics. In Yoga Sutra, there's four characteristics. Um, Patanjali adds one more which is uh, what's 
pure and what's impure. So I'm doing attending in March. Yeah. And um, I'm really scared. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I don't know. Like I, I'm having problems with the, even the first, like calming. Like I, mm-hmm. I start to not be able to breathe, and then I feel sick, and mm-hmm. then I just. You know, that I'm dying because I can't breathe anymore, mm-hmm. and then yeah. I want to move. Yeah. Like, you know. Um, so, so you—that's what you're noticing. But does it break apart when I leave? Like, like, do I, does it break apart on the cushion? Just notice it. That's what you're noticing. Remember earlier, I was saying how you can notice something and then say that this is what's happening as opposed to just moving back a little bit saying oh look at what I'm noticing the quality of the noticing does this make sense so you're noticing that these are the things you're experiencing rather than I'm going to die and this is actually what happens in these kind of retreats is that some people freak out and go okay I've got to go home but Usually what someone is scared of is their idea that it's overwhelming. Do you see what I'm saying? Not that it's overwhelming. It's the idea that I'm going to be overwhelmed. The child psychologist Donald Winnicott has this beautiful term. He says there's an important distinction between disintegration and unintegration. When we're sitting, we're looking for unintegration. He has a term, going to pieces without falling apart. Mark Epstein takes all yeah, those <laughs> titles, by the way. <laughs> going on being. Going to pieces without falling apart. That's what bewilderment feels like. Certainly does. So that is unintegration? Unintegration. And the consequence of unintegration is love. Because the only thing that's being unintegrated is your viewpoint. And there can't be love when you're clinging to your viewpoint. Try it at home. Even in those cold Montreal winters, (laughs) love is still possible. Especially when you speak French. So, one more comment. Michael, it's true you were talking about how um, in different cultures mm-hmm. the mind or the center of the body is placed in different um, parts oh, yeah. of, of one's body. Uh-huh. Of the body. And um, this morning I was thinking about that and 
I really tried to sense where I would think the center of my body is if no one had told me that it was in my brain. And I have to say that no matter how hard I try, I really feel a lot of sensation in this area, which to me would lead me to believe that the center of me, and I feel sensation here and obviously here, but if I try to convince myself that the center of whatever this body happens to be is in my toes, I couldn't really do it. Yeah. Do you ever experience anything like that? Where you try to place the center of what's going on in your body in different parts of your body? The problem is, is that you don't have a body. <laughs> the problem is, is that your mind creates this idea that there's a body that has a certain um, uh, beginning and a certain end, uh, which mostly has to do with your vision and mostly of the front of your body. And um, uh, so the fact that there is a body is just an idea to begin with. And, um, you know, when you start to sit for a while and really pay attention to sensation, you notice that um, it doesn't make sense anymore to say that sensations are happening in the body. (laughs) Because they're just sensations are happening. And actually, if you take the location away, then it's just like any other phenomenon, and it's easier to watch than it happening in a body. And I would say that uh, this is happening personally, and also we have cultural assumptions about our body and what the parts are and where they are and what they mean. And you have an ancestral baggage uh, about what constitutes your body and the parts and what they mean and where they are. I remember when um, Michelle was breastfeeding one day and I was watching and then I had this strange realization that, oh, that's what breasts are for. (laughs) It's like I just saw like the utilitarian breast, you know? And it occurred to me that um, I couldn't really, I've never really seen breasts before. I've just seen a whole conglomeration of associations as to what breasts are for me. And then it was like something broke through that and breasts were something completely, completely different. And you could keep going with that about breasts not even being yours. Like I had this experience one time. Um, some of you may have heard the story, but I was with a wonderful scholar, Wendy Doniger, and um, we were in Cape Cod and we were sitting on a beach, and um, she had just ha- had cancer, breast cancer and also was going through menopause. And so um, there was sort of a realization that, you know, she wasn't going to be a mother again, in the sense of having her own child. She had had one son many years earlier. And um, in front of us, a woman sat down on the beach and started breastfeeding, right when we were talking about this. And then another woman, (laughs) 
sat down on the beach next to this other and she, you know, started breastfeeding her kid was in a sling or whatever. And uh, Wendy had this realization. So first she was sad, right? Like, I'm not going to be a mother. My breasts are not going to have milk moving through them anymore. And just like everything she has associated. And you would all of yourselves have stories, you know, about that. And then she had this realization that, oh, other women are going to breastfeed. And there they were. Other women are going to give birth and are going to breastfeed. Like, why is this all so wrapped up in like, I'm gonna, I'm not gonna be a mother. I'm not going to breastfeed. And then there was this sort of happiness around this fact that other women were going to do this work. Someone else is going to have that experience. So you're practicing Urdhva Dhanurasana and the person next to you goes up into the most beautiful Urdhva Dhanurasana you've ever seen. And just your heart opens and you're so happy for them that they can practice such a beautiful Urdhva Dhanurasana. Beautiful backbend. And then the person at work in the cubicle next to you gets a promotion. And then you're so happy for them. Wow, someone else is getting a promotion. Opposed to bitch. <laughs> I've been here way longer. She's getting a promotion. Does this make sense to you? Not to worry. Other people are going to breastfeed. And then can you open to that for real? Where there's a kind of happiness for others that they're going to have kids. And that's where we see how part of the superego is so cultural. My culture says I have to have kids. It's got to look this way. So there's a little little death there. And what's dying? The contraction around the viewpoint is dying. I'm having problems. I don't want things to change. Uh-huh. Um, okay, so maybe it's just going to say, oh, fine, I'm all happy, I'm flying all over the place, I'm all good. And then this morning I'm sitting here down. It's Thursday. Oh God, I only got one more day. Oh Monday, I gotta go back to work. Oh my God, what am I gonna do? And then yeah. I'm not sitting anymore. I'm in my yeah. head, uh-huh. freaking out about today's yeah. Thursday. Tomorrow's Friday, and I gotta go back to work. And then I said to myself, okay, stay in the moment, stay in the moment. And then it's uh-huh. like I'm there for a minute, and then I'm back again. Uh-huh. And then you're talking, I'm thinking. I just want to stay here. I just want to stay in this. But And then the joke is, you're not even here. 
Like we're already at work. You know, I always quote this poem because I think about it all the time. Basho's famous poem when he goes to Kyoto on his pilgrimage and he pens these three lines. Um, the background, of course, for those of you who don't, who don't know the story of Basho, Japanese poet, is he, he has a kind of awakening. And um, the, my favorite enlightenment stories are where people have an awakening and then they um, go into the world in a way that they strive to become ordinary. Shantideva goes and becomes a farmer. Basho goes on a pilgrimage to be nothing. And all he wants to do is go to Kyoto. He's just always wanted to go see the temples in Kyoto. So finally he gets there, and the first day he's there, he writes this poem. Even in Kyoto, I hear a bird chirping and long for Kyoto. (laughs) Even in Kyoto... Okay, he's there. (laughs) He hears a bird chirping and he catches himself longing to be in Kyoto. (laughs) That's how, yeah? You're at home, Sherry's at home sleepy and says, oh, you know, I just need the support of uh, this group here next week uh, so I can uh, sit and learn how to work with the tiredness. And then you come here. And it's like, oh, just to be back in the tiredness. <laughs> you don't want, you know, so you're already at work on Monday. So that's how creative you are, right? That's how creative the mind is. That's why I like to translate chitta as imagination. Because that's what it is, right? Like, it's, it's so... It's art. It's just making the most elaborate installations. I sometimes think that too. Like when you're dreaming, you wake up and you think about your dream. Like, I'm so clever when I'm asleep. Because when <laughs> I was awake, I could never make up all those little details. Color, yeah. and the faces, and the wonderful things. Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. That's amazing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. When you're eating before bed. <laughs> 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 All my life I had to reach. <laughs> <laughs> I had a crazy little story during the last meditation. <laughs> I had this weird pain around here. And all of a my head made a big story of that. I was like, oh, maybe it's my appendix. What did I do about my appendix now? Oh, I've been out there. Well, I'm going to take a mortgage. And all of a sudden, I had this experience once where I was, um, just to share experiences, but um, I had gotten off a plane and I was in Austria and um, there was a lot of traveling that day. I was going from France to Austria and uh, I had to teach the next day all day and I just, I was a bit fried. So I, I sat down in this really lovely studio that someone had arranged for me and I was sitting and I was just sweating 
like through my clothes. Uh, and I was just thinking as I was sitting just about air, airplane travel and just how often we get sick when we're taking planes. And, and then I remembered the person who was going to the bathroom before me just sneezing the whole way into the bathroom. And then I was getting angry at them and thinking, like, is there some kind of screening that they can do? So that, <laughs> I mean, you know now, like, to get into the American border, they check your eyes, you know, uh, instead of having, you know, your passport or whatever. And um, so, uh, you know, can't they do some kind of, like, uh, you walk through a machine and they see if there's too many germs. I was thinking maybe they should have these like at schools for kids so that they're not sick all the time. It would be such an interesting thing. And I can't believe I'm sick from this short flight. And how am I going to teach when I'm, you know, maybe we won't do asana tomorrow. Okay. So then like some time ends and then I get up and I see that I had set the thermostat. (laughs) And the room was so hot. And actually I felt fine. And um, and it didn't even occur to me. You might have done that. Yeah. And how self-centered yeah. the whole process was. Yeah. To not even think outside of my own worry about myself. It's a good lesson. Mm-hmm. Yeah. 